0: Ladies and gentlemen, uh, can I please have your attention? Daniel, <laughs> greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Uh, you know, I don't normally uh, ask people to do this anymore, but you know, if you want to go to wherever you get your podcasts and give us a nice review or. Uh, um, a five-star rating, uh, that'd be great. If you don't want to do that, you know, best not to bother visiting those places. Um, So uh, I, I keep getting told to stop talking about how tired I am when I do these things early in the morning, so I will stop doing that um, for the time being. Uh, um, but I'm on a little bit of a clock here because we, as I think I mentioned, we've switched the schedule. The group podcast, the group dispatch podcast, you know, what you might call the Dispatch All-Stars, although everybody works for the Dispatch um, is an all-star, even the Gingers. Um, but the group one with me, Sarah, David, and that Hayes guy, um, we now record that Friday mornings, which is normally when I record the solo remnant. So we're going to try and figure out a different time for the solo remnant going forward. Um, it, it, it might rub up against the rub against the grain of the whole spirit of the first friday drive time episode since it's supposed to be drive time but you know maybe we'll do it thursday nights at evening rush hour drive time which is also a thing so but well i'll figure that out don't you worry about it um but i gotta do that like um right after i finish this thing um and so one of the reasons i bring that up is one because i think it's important to keep you people in the loop but two because uh i am sure we're going to talk a lot about a, about russia and ukraine on that and i don't want to say the same things twice so i'm not going to do any deep dive on russia and ukraine here there is one thing that is is sufficiently eggheadish and um obscure that I don't think will come up on the, on the, the, the punditry podcast, um, that I'm just, I have to admit, I'm just fascinated by, I think it's really interesting. I got to do a deeper dive on some of it. Um, and it's simply this, uh, you know, Putin does not say, he does not talk about ethnic Russians in Ukraine. You know, you see that in the West a lot. Uh, Michael Flynn in his statement yesterday, which was just evil, um, because, you know, Michael Flynn's simply a villain at this point. I mean, he's like almost a comic book villain, Um, you know, was referring to uh, Russia's ethnic problems in Ukraine, um, which was basically lending aid and comfort rhetorically to Trump's uh, to Trump's to Putin's claims that uh, he needed to rescue uh, Russians from, you know, genocidal Nazis. Uh, running Ukraine and all that garbage, but Putin doesn't refer to them as ethnic Russians. If you listen, he keeps referring to them as Russian speakers and you know and there, there there's a couple of things about this one um he, when you think about it, he needs to say it that way because part of his whole argument is that Ukrainians are Russians, right that this is actually the birthplace of russia and and he's got a point there it is the birthplace of russia but you know um um that does, that argument doesn't his conclusions do not flow from uh the concession of that fact um but uh so he can't say that these are ethnic russians because his whole point is is that the ukrainians are ethnic russians too same genetic stock however you want to you know, I, you know, however you want to define what an ethnicity is in a biological sense, I, I'm not going to get deep into it. You know, if you want to bust out the phrenology calipers, be my guest. But, uh, you know, his whole argument on his own terms is that, that, that Ukrainians are Russians. And so the distinction between Russians and Ukrainians as an ethnic thing, as a biological, genetic, you know, racial thing just doesn't work. So he refers to Russian speakers and um, which I think you know in and of itself is just sort of interesting um, and this idea <laughs> that somehow because people speak your language um, in another country that that and that alone you know know I, like I understand that there are cultural things tied up with with language as well but you know again putin says that ukrainian culture is russian culture so some of those other cultural things like cuisine or you know and various traditions and all that kind of thing they don't really attach the same way um as they might when in arguments about language being rooted in culture um but like I, it's interesting to me that in the 21st century there are people who would argue that simply because some a group of people Speak the same language as you, that creates an obligation in and of itself to rush to their defense. Now, don't get me wrong. I understand that a lot of this stuff is pretextual and cynical and propaganda and BS. That's fine. But, you know, Putin's choosing these arguments for a reason. He thinks they resonate, they think that they are at some level compelling even if he has other interests and motivations at play and this idea of rushing to defend uh people who speak the russian language um he thinks is 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 compelling and i think that's really interesting if you were a now look i can kind of get it if if you know there are like only a handful of people who still speak some of these native american languages and you you know might move heaven on earth to save a language from becoming a dead language and that kind of thing um i get you know that france has an as a higher interest in what they call francophone countries but part of that is because the french are obsessed with you know uh, this the the domination or the supremacy of the French language that's why in you know whenever you see the backdrops of for like uh, people at NATO it always has to say nato and otan um because otan is the acronym for the French pronunciation of NATO um it's all fine you know um uh but you know the reason why france cares about francophone countries isn't just because it likes to to talk about the superiority of its language and and all of that, it does it because Francophone countries are by definition former colonies and they have other cultural, you know, historic, political um, ties to those places. And, uh, but like, first of all, Russian chauvinism about the Russian language you know, I, I have to think only takes you so far. I, I'm sure Tolstoy is better than the original Russian and all that. But it's not like Russian is a dying language. It is not like uh, there is widespread oppression of Russian speakers qua Russian speakers or anything like that. And so this leads to something that I, I think I've talked about a couple of times on here before. Um, this is this is part of a larger thing about language that I find truly fascinating. If you go back and you read, you know, they're basically of the among intellectuals, they're, you know, two of the most important uh German intellectuals who were considered, you know, among the intellectual founding fathers, perhaps the leading intellectual founding fathers of German nationalism and in some ways nationalism as a concept, um though that gets complicated. Um uh certainly romantic nationalism as academics used to call it, uh were uh two guys named johann one was johann ficht or Fichte, i don't know how to pronounce it and the other one was johann herder and uh they had you know they had pluses and minuses i think herder is a kind of a better dude um he's the one who went around um and worked assiduously to revive a lot of german culture like the reason why we have um you know why the brothers grim fairy tales survive is because of some of the work and the inspiration from, from Herder. Um, he was sort of, he was, a, he was a nationalist, but he was also a liberal. Um, people forget uh, or never knew that, you know, liberalism and nationalism in the early eighteen hundred, you know, at the dawn of nationalism were not um, contradictory terms. You know, liberalism was arrayed against uh, monarchism and empire and um broadly speaking because you know i gotta speak in a s- certain level of generality but uh you know whether it's the philosophs or the american revolutionaries or who you know whoever you want to point to or adam smith in the scottish enlightenment they were they're were against superstition they were against um uh you know in titles of nobility and monarchy and aristocracy um they're against monarchy uh, i'm sorry and they were against uh you know, uh, theological control of uh, society, or theocratic control of society by the Catholic Church, um, and they're against empires and and nationalism. This idea of the nation-state, the sort of Westphalian nation-state that basically whose borders basically contoured with you know a a, a given people. Um, and we can just get to the second how we define a given people. Um, uh, nationalism was the corrective to a lot of that right i mean nationalism today a lot of the self-described nationalists see no contradiction between monarchy and 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 nationalism and and frankly there isn't necessarily a contradiction there but uh, you know 250 300 years ago nationalism was tied up with sort of this populist democratic argument that the people should have self-determination that the people should rule that it's the people and not the king who should determine what is national honor and and what are national customs and all of that sort of thing, and um, uh, and that was in, in a sense you know small d democratic to it. Um. So anyway, uh, that was Herder, and then there's this guy Johann Ficht, who uh gives this very very famous. I guess it was it began. I really should have looked it up before I started talking. Uh, a series of lectures, but it was it's famously called um, uh, like a letter to the German people or um, uh, a letter to the German nation. I think is is what it's called. And what's fascinating about it, I read it when I was working on my book. Is if if like you read it to a class of eighth graders, you'd think that this was, you know, maybe some sort of Nazi. And um, or it's not not the whole thing, but certain passages. And it, that would be unfair to Ficht because the concepts of biological racism, with the exception of maybe, you know, anti-Semitism, um, uh, were not really a thing um, in 1800. And I think Ficht writes the letter to the German nation in 1800 or 1801, something like that. um. And what he's saying in this thing is uh, that the German people are essentially defined by a language. And Herder believes this, too. You know, Herder has these great lines. It's like back then, Frederick the Great, who was the, you know, the head of Prussia, uh, all of those courts basically spoke French. And French was sort of the official language of Europe. It was the lingua franca of Europe. Um, it was certainly the the, the language of nobility. Um, in imperial courts and all that, and um, and Herder and Ficht despised that, and they had, uh, you know, Herder has these great lines where he says stuff like, "Oh ye German people, spit out that evil slime of the Seine, being the river in Paris, um, and speak your mother tongue," and um, um, the argument was, you know, from from Ficht was that. Germany or the German, you know, people, because back then there was no Germany. It was, I don't know, 45, 47, something like that. Little German states and some big ones like, you know, Prussia. Um, And uh, the only thing that really defined them was language. And, uh, and Fick's argument was, is that Germany, unlike any other of the major countries or peoples of Europe, um, was not Latinized. That the Roman Empire uh, did not leave behind the, you know, the 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 bathtub ring of Romance languages um, in the, among the German peoples, and so the German language was still rooted in the blood and soil of uh, you know and these are these kinds of phrases that start coming up you know in the blood and the soil of of you know the german nation and 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 that the german language was unpolluted with this mediterranean swill and, and it, it it's very redolent this language that a lot of these guys used back then um of the kind of language that you that the that the Nazis used. But again, these guys weren't Nazis. Nazism wasn't a thing and it wouldn't be a thing for 125, 130 years. Um and uh but you could see how these categories were all were were being constructed around language in a way that you could sort of plug it later on, you could just sort of plug and play and say, oh, you know, it really wasn't language. It was it was biology, it was blood, it was um you know genetics and um uh it was race and but in 18, in the early 1800s language was the um uh this you know, the substitute the precursor for race talk and um you know, and it's, it's amazing when you read some of this stuff about how this idea that the German people, because they speak this language that is unpolluted by sort of, uh, you know, the Mediterranean or North African, you know, uh, Latin languages uh, is so much more authentic and genuine and unpolluted. And it has, and, and, and it shows how the, the German people are really the last pure people whose Again, just language. They're not talking about really race very much. Uh, uh, but they are still connected with the soil. Sort of like the way... Like, this argument is sort of like the Germans are the noble savages of of Europe. That the Germans are like the Native Americans in the New World, but of Europe. They're the re- original peoples, the aboriginals um, of Europe. And the proof of this is that their language is still intact. And what I find interesting about this in the present day is that we just don't talk enough about the importance of of speech of language and how important it is to our brains you know so I had if you hadn't listened to it you should go back and listen to the conversation I had with Paul Bloom uh the the psychologist uh, formerly at Yale now he's back up in Canada um, um I guess at McGill uh, I love Bloom. I love his books. And uh, we talked at length about one of my favorite books, which is uh, this book called Just Babies. And just a quick recap. In Just Babies, it's it's like the full title is like Just Babies, The Origins of Good and Evil, you know, and it's got just two adorable babies on it. And you're, it makes you a little nervous because like I do not sort of like, uh you know, we were watching, have you ever watched like Servant, the Apple TV show or... You know willow the 30 year old show i do not like any suggestion of babies in peril but and so you see the babies in good and evil and you're like oh but no babies were harmed in the process of making that book but it does cover it's a survey of the state of the art of psychological literature about the preset factory programming babies come into this world with right if you're it's it's a it's a just a really gentle but devastating attack on the blank slateism, which I I, I think at this point no one really believes uh the blank blank slate theories that we you know we just come into this world with nothing and um and so that we're all just simply products of our cultural and environmental and educational um inputs, but I think there are a lot of people who want it to be true and still operate it as, as if it is true, but if you actually press them and say, do you actually believe that garbage? they probably say no at this point, at least most of the smart and informed people. But uh, it is an assumption that creeps into our minds all the time and it's just not true, right? Um, we come into this world with a lot of factory presets. Um, and then it's, you know, the way James Q. Wilson, another one of my intellectual heroes used to put it, uh, He said, you know, we come into the world sort of like an undeveloped, uh, photo or negative, photo negative, um, for you kids today, photos used to be done with like chemicals and film and whatever. And he said raised properly and with all the right environments, uh, you can develop the, the negative, so it comes completely into focus and looks perfect. And, um, or you could develop it wrong, put it in the wrong chemicals for a wrong amount of time, and it'll come out fuzzy. But the underlying image of who we are is is there. I don't know if that Wilson's analogy quite works as well as I used to. But the point is, is that we have programming and we have subroutines. Uh, Jonathan Haidt uh, doesn't like the phrase "hardwired." Instead, he uses he likes to use as analogy apps. You know, we have all these apps on our phone or, you know, with Steve, all these apps on our plates, but that's a different story. Um, uh, We have all these apps on our phones and we can run some or not run some. And some could be running in the background and some, you know, uh, aren't running at all and that kind of thing. And different circumstances, environments, inputs, whatever, turn on or turn off these apps as we go. And fine, we can survey all that later. But anyway, so in Just Babies, you know, Bloom chronicles how, like, babies have a moral sense that, you know, they believe in sharing. And, um, they, 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 when they see puppets doing bad things, they think, you know, the puppet who does something bad should be punished. And there, I mean, there's just all of this stuff, these sort of moral instincts that we are born with. Um, and that over time, you know, parents are supposed to develop. And, uh, But one of the things that I just that stuck with me the most is how important language is to babies. And again, as I I you know said on that podcast or pointed out on the podcast, babies are born with accents. Like a Russian baby who grew up around Russians, right? Because it's not a genetic thing. It's not an ethnic thing. Um uh it's an environmental thing that starts in utero. But Russian babies, uh have a Russian accent to their crying. they also respond and French babies have a French accent and Swahili babies have a Swahili accent. It's fascinating to me and moreover, and this is the really important part um, apparently you know for all the talk about how skin color is the mo- this incredibly important dynamic in our lives and yada yada yada, the truth is is that that babies will will, um be more distressed by someone who speaks in a different language or with a different accent um than somebody of a different color uh babies are not super focused um you know and when i say babies i think it stops at the age of 3 in this book um so some of this you know is really on toddlers which is fine because you know toddlers is when the brain is kind of up and running but they're you know most toddlers are not that well educated, so it still works. Um, but regardless, uh, you know, babies, babies will feel very uncomfortable around someone who speaks a foreign language or speaks their language with a f- thick foreign accent. But they really don't care if you know someone who's who looks different than them. You know, if they're black and uh, some white lady comes up, it doesn't bother them or Asian. You know, th- whatever. It's like skin color and eth- visual cues of ethnicity aren't that important but auditory ones are and i think that's fascinating and it it helps explain how even before concepts of biological racism came in to the conversation uh you could talk about language different languages speakers um and sound awfully racist and that and and in fact that's i actually argue that this is part of the problem that we have today and i was you know and i asked bloom about this because i i I, you know i go on here a lot about how i'm a a believer in bourgeois values and i think that um you know everybody regardless of um race creed color whatever um so long as they abide by these sort of basic rules of 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 decent of middle class decency they'll be okay and they're okay people um and that's why i want everybody to sort of you know buy into these kinds of things you know delayed gratification politeness honesty thrift hard work you know all that and uh um and i actually you know i i think it's actually kind of obvious that one of the things that holds back people is not being able to speak proper english yes absolutely people can have debates about what is and isn't proper English. And there obviously all this invites all sorts of arguments about, you know, white privilege and, and all that kind of stuff. Fine. But the simple fact is, is that this, this, this point about language is true globally and it is not contextualized purely in the United States of America. Go back and watch, you know, my fair lady and see about how much of class, how, how class stuff was driven. By accents. If you spoke in a Cockney accent, you were just sort of considered street scum. And, but if, you know, if, if, if Dr. whatever his name uh, could teach Eliza how to, um, I wanted to say Dr. Doolittle, but that's the animal guy. Um, If he could teach, you know, Eliza to speak the Queen's English, everyone would assume she was an aristocrat. This is just a thing. Like BBC English is a thing. And if you are uh, sort of a low class, um, and I don't mean low class as a bad person, I just mean in the, in the English context of you live in a lower, you're a lower socioeconomic status thing. But if you speak brilliant English, um, it just opens doors. And, uh, and, and so like you can cry racism and, and all that all you like. It doesn't change the fact that this is, this is true um, you know, and it's, it's amazing to me how like you can see it in Americans when they hear, uh, you know, a black guy from the UK speak just perfect English. And it's it's so much of the racial baggage we have in this country just melts away. And I'm not saying that racial baggage is good. I'm not defending the racial baggage. I'm just saying it exists, you know, um, and and so like. The reason why I think this is like really, really important is, you know, we don't need to get into, you know, population genetics and and all of these kinds of things. You know, we don't have to get into sort of the, the Charles Murray version of it or this this woman who's coming out with this new book, who's got the sort of the left wing version of the Charlie Charles Murray argument. Um, you don't have to get into any of that stuff because everybody. Can agree that. W- that people are capable of learning to speak proper English. Um, You just got to teach them. And that doesn't mean you have to lose black English. You know, I talked about this a little bit with John McWhorter, who's a linguist and John McWhorter, you know, goes back and forth between, you know, various black dialects as, as easily as he does with, you know, foreign languages. I mean, the guy's a polymath. He's brilliant. Um, uh, You know, jews played this double game for um most of their history where you know they would speak the language of the outside population but they'd also speak yiddish to other jews um so i mean i'm not advocating for a cultural genocide or erasure or anything like that i'm just saying that this is something that we can actually affect that we know we can affect that we know everybody is capable of doing of doing this and if it would I'm not saying it would solve all of our racial problems in our country or you know, and when I say racial problems, I just don't mean black, white. I also mean, you know, with you know, Hispanics and and everybody else. I just mean that it, I don't think it would solve come close to solving all of these sorts of problems. But would it improve things a little at the margins in some cases? Would it would it create more opportunities for people who need more opportunities? I think so. So anyway, I don't wanna, I, I, like I was, I was, at least I'm talking about it here is I was talking about with my wife last night, my wife. Like a lot of people tell me, oh, you just can't say these things um, because this is so fraught and so perilous and people take um, su- such offense at, at this kind of thing, you know? Um, and I can make the exact same arguments here. I mean, I, I think there are a lot of Southerners who understand what I'm saying, but also get really defensive. Um, because there is this Northern bias, this po- this mainstream, you know, coastal culture has, is, is, is speaking again in broad generalizations is kind of bigoted against Southerners. And, um, um, and that's been true for a very, very long time. And it's not just Southerners, you know, people with the, you know, the Wisconsin, you know, the, the sort of Fargo accent, uh, they get looked down on too, you know. This is because this is a thing with human beings. This is we judge people by their accents and the way they talk, um, and so I could make this entire argument about you know, for just take black people, take racial minorities out of it entirely, about say you know Appalachians, um, uh, and their sort of or or people from Dundalk, Maryland, which has I think the ugliest accent in America. Uh, no offense to, you know, Dundalk or to Marylanders. I, I I love Baltimore. The Baltimore accent is a kind of slightly more charming version of the Dundalk accent, which is the most intense, um, at least in my experience. Um, uh, but uh, where was I going? Uh, simply, you know, this is a thing. And I think, you know, if I were to say, you know, quote unquote white trash people, if they learned how to speak, uh, you know, with perfect diction in a eloquent and articulate manner, it would be easier for them to find jobs. And I think there are some people who would take great offense at this because there's this real defensiveness about, you know, Southern accents and all, and, and dialects and all those kinds of things while at the same time conceding that I'm absolutely right. You know, if, if wearing a suit to a job interview helps you, um, then, speaking in, a, in an impressive and professional manner has to help you too um so anyway uh it's a long way long route from russia defending russian speakers um in ukraine to uh job interviews wearing a suit and speaking properly but i want to get that off that chest off my chest what else so i i had a long thread on twitter yesterday um because i was really annoyed with a lot of really stupid reactions to an earlier tweet and i'm not gonna i'm not dwelling on this because it's twitter i'm dwelling on it because i think it's an important point so uh, listeners have heard me rant about my problems with nationalism um my problems with the self-declared nationalists uh you know i think there are good arguments out there in favor of nationalism I think uh my friends uh Rich Lowry and Ramesh Panuru in a cover piece for National Review a few years ago probably put the best gloss on it um possible or best made the best case for it Rich in his book does as well about nationalism my problem with the way that Ramesh and Rich talk about nationalism and also you know to be fair David Brooks has been you know Uh, pounding this drum for for 30 years he likes nationalism um and part of the problem is with part of the problem with these debates about nationalism is it it almost entirely depends on definitions because the way that rich and ramesh define nationalism is to me really just 80 or 90 percent patriotism which again i have to define patriotism versus nationalism but uh you know there there if you define nationalism in a way that says it 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 strengthens and heightens and emphasizes um america's democratic institutions um customs and norms, then how am I going to get angry at it um but my problem is is that the concept of nationalism historically um, over time does not actually countenance respect for democratic um institutions and norms and 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 all of that it it tends to override them because the people who get most fired up by the term nationalism tend to be in a state of perpetual crisis it is a form of populism it presupposes that um there is a true and authentic people that define what the nation really is and um and the only way you can define something is in in Sort of political and social affairs is by defining it against something else, and so inevitably nationalism becomes a thing that says we here are the good people and those are the bad people. And sometimes that kind of nationalism, that ba- sometimes nationalism says the bad people are, are across a border, and that creates one set of problems. Um, and sometimes that kind of nationalism says the bad people are. Within the nation itself, and they, um, and they are undermining the nation from within, and they need to be dealt with. And I think we got a lot of that kind of nationalism these days. Um, but I again, I could get deep in the weeds. On, actually, I already have gotten deep in the weeds on this with the Johann Ficht and Herder stuff. But I made this point on Twitter the night the invasion started, where I, I. I just simply noted that um, I found it very... I can can read it to you because that's the kind of guy I am. Um, I wrote, yeah, I wrote, amazing how so many of the self-proclaimed American nationalists talk such a big game about the importance of nationalism, the morality of nationalism, the necessity of nationalism, but just don't care very much when an imperial power tries to erase a nation. Now, this was, I will confess, I didn't think it was particularly subtle, but I was subtweeting the so-called natcons, um, you know, which is a amorphous group of people, uh, but specifically people like who do the National Conservatism conferences, and um, uh, you know, and Yoram Hazony, who wrote that book, "The Virtues of Nationalism," and uh, I'm not a fan of Hazony's book. Um, think i gave him way too fair a hearing to be honest when i had him on the podcast a long time ago uh i i think basically he commits the sin of saying uh nationalism is always good everywhere good and anytime something bad happens in the name of nationalism it ceases to be nationalism so the second nationalism leads to you know uh uh Aggressive wars on neighbors or anything like that—it becomes imperialism and is no longer nationalism. Um, there's a lot that he contends that I do agree with. You know, like a big part of his argument is that the nation, the, the Westphalian system of nation-states, which is basically you know what we've had for the last 300 years, more or less—not West, well, anyway, you know what I mean—a uh, global order where where recognizable peoples are, um, reside in their own nation states. And the nation state is the highest unit of political organization. So he thinks things like, you know, transnationalism, uh, uh, globalism, uh, the EU, uh, the UN, that these things are enemies of, uh, the proper political order because they are, you know, sort of Trojan horse imperial. In a certain way, that the EU is erasing national identities in Europe under some supranational, you know, uh, agglomeration and bureaucracy and all that. And I'm very sympathetic to a lot of that stuff. I don't think that's nationalism. I don't think that's nationalism as it's reflected in the academic literature. I don't think that's nationalism as reflected in everyday discourse. Nationalism, you know, that, that's nationism, right? It's just the idea that nations, nation states with, with defined borders, are good um but and i and i not think way too much of Ozoni's stuff is basically s- seeing the entire world through the prism of the plight of israel and obviously i'm very sympathetic to the plight of israel but i don't think you can squeeze all of western political philosophy um through that prism um regardless i take those guys on their own terms right i take them at their i took them at face value that They mean it when they say, you know, borders are sacrosanct, sovereignty is supreme, uh, nation states um, should be made inviolate and not be meddled with from abroad. Um, This is their rhetoric. I mean, I I love it. They actually have a conference coming up in Brussels uh, in March. And here's the description from their website. The National Conservatism Conference, The Future of the Nation-State in Europe. That's the title of the conference. And it says, NatCon brings together public figures, journalists, scholars, and students who understand that the past and future of conservatism are inextricably tied to the idea of the nation, to the principle of national independence, and to the revival of unique national traditions that alone have the power to bind of people together and bring about their flourishing. This is this is their boilerplate, not mine, right? I don't think that that national this nationalism stuff should supplant or replace conservatism. And I don't think that you know the the good stuff that they that they are in favor of that I agree with. None of it is new, and none of it needs to be called nationalism because it has been part of mainstream conservatism for generations. It's I think most of this stuff is BS. But I took them at their word that they actually believe this stuff, right? About national independence, about borders, about sovereignty and all the rest. And yet most of these people just shrug and yawn at the fact that Russia in the name of imperialism, um, you know, and, and irredentism is trying to er erase the borders of a country and spare me this BS about, you know, you know, like, you can you can agree entirely with Putin's arguments, which apparently Tucker Carlson and a lot of these people do, um, that Ukraine belongs to Russia, Ukraine is part of Russia, the Ukrainians really are Russians. You can even buy this absolutely bogus argument that this is all an invention of the Soviet Union. I mean, the Soviet Union did play games so it could have extra seats in the UN. Um uh by making Ukraine, you know, more into claiming Ukraine was more independent than it was. But Ukraine is a is a people, it is a nation, it has a history. One, and even if it doesn't have didn't have all that kind of stuff, it wants to be. Like they have enough identity as a nation that when they voted for independence in the early 90s after the fall of the Soviet Union, 92% of Ukrainians were in favor of independence. You know, and like so, you know people who say uh like putin who say ukraine was part of russia it was born of russia yada 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 okay i mean I, i'm not sure that's true i don't want to get into the, the you know the weeds about you know the the viking volodymyr in the 10th century and what all that the people of the ruse means i don't i don't particularly care you know, America was born in the UK. These were all, you know, the, before the American revolution, the, the, the Englishmen who were, you know, still that da- back then simply petitioning, uh, the crown, uh, to address their grievances, they consider themselves, um, uh, they all consider themselves to be Englishmen pressing for their ancient rights and liberties. Uh, So what does that mean that we should be you know subsumed back into the u k Australia was founded you know was was as a nation was founded by you know by by brits does does that mean that Britain has a claim to recolonize australia um it's just it's it's a like it, part of the problem is, is in our debates of these kinds this kind of stuff we are so quick to assume that the people taking the bad position or the wrong side um that their arguments must be wrong and sometimes obviously they are um i can get to that in a second but sometimes it's not just that it's not so much that their arguments are wrong it's that even if their even if their arguments are true they don't matter ukraine wants to be a nation ukraine thinks of itself as a nation ukraine has, you know, like a nationalist spirit and it had recognized borders. And even if you, again, I think it's BS, but even if you recognize, um, you know, Putin's claim to the Donbass area, uh, how does that justify, uh, shelling Kiev? How does that justify you know, uh, saying you're going to decapitate and demilitarize the entire country. And yet, you know, I went and I looked, your Amazoni hasn't, you know, he, he's been tweeting, just hasn't said a word, you know, at least as of yesterday about Ukraine. And a bunch of these people who call themselves NatCons, you know, they're, they're out there saying, um, you know, uh, they were much more angry at Justin Trudeau than they were at Vladimir Putin. And a lot of them were talking about how, you know, You know, NATO is the problem, buying into Putin's BS arguments on all of that. Um, You know, I'm not I'm not the one who has invested my entire career and political identity and an enormous amount of sanctimonious preening and self-righteousness into these categories of nationalism and this this argument that 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 nationhood is the highest, best conception of the political order and that we should reorient all of our politics and defenestrate American conservatism in favor of industrial policy and all of these other things um, uh, in service to this idea of nationalism as being the new sort of godhead of of the American right they are and they're not pissed at all about or actually I'm sure some of them are I I don't follow them religiously but the ones that I've noticed it's just it's 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 Certainly, there's a dearth of outrage. And don't tell me, you know, as some of these people say, oh, well, you know, it's just America's vital national interests that we care about. And we don't really care about, you know, this far off East European country. Um, Okay, well, then maybe, you know, stop. Taking. Junkets to Hungary every friggin' five minutes and acting like you work for the Hungarian Chamber of Commerce, talking about it at some sort of friggin' Shangri La or Brigadoon, and like it's it should be to the American right what Sweden or Cuba were to the American left. I mean, last I checked, that's a. I mean, maybe you want to call it Central European country, but you get the point. Um, it is. Uh, and and again, if you think. If you think these things about borders and sovereignty are real and a vital staple of the international order, then you have to care about what's happening to Ukraine because you're the one who's talking about how they're essential to the international order. If you don't care about the international order, um, fine, say so. But that's not, that's not what the argument these people are making. It's just, it's simply that Putin owns the libs. He doesn't like gays. Um, Biden is president. Uh, Trump has a, you know, to mess it, man crush on 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 Putin and everyone's sucked into dumb ass tribal partisanship that uh, they just don't have it in them to criticize Putin. Um, you know, the way they want to criticize for, for freaking sake, <laughs> Justin Trudeau, who, again, I think is a putz and handled everything badly. And I'm not going to offend Justin Trudeau. But my God, it's just weird um and anyway so i did a long thread explaining why these people say oh you don't know anything about nationalism um were wrong and i was right and i'll i'll leave it at that um what else uh oh just one quick thing on this international order stuff i you know you keep hearing from the sort of juvenile isolationist right and i say juvenile not because there aren't serious isolationists out there um or non-interventionist whatever label you want to use it's that a lot of them are just arguing in a really childish way i mean i'm sorry you know when tucker goes and says vladimir putin never called me a racist um as if that's an argument about something um it's just, it's just childish and um uh sorry coffee um uh and you, know, and, you know, Sorb Mari had that tweet a while back where I guess he deleted it, where he um, said he's perfectly comfortable with um, a China-led international order because America is so corrupt and decadent and whatever. Um, and you see that kind of crap all over the place. Um, I just want to be clear about something. I mean, I have lots of problems with those positions and I can delineate them um, and expound upon them all day long, but I just want to make one basic one. The idea, the inherent premise of this sort of retrenchment, restraint, come home America, uh, isolationist, neon interventionist, whatever labels you want to put on it, that whole gestalt is based on this premise that we need to turn our attention inward because we have problems here. Sometimes it's this other argument about how we have no right to judge other countries because we suck so bad ourselves, which used to be a predominantly left-wing thing, and now it's increasingly a right-wing thing. Um, But this idea that, oh, we don't want to go abroad seeking monsters to destroy. We think NATO has outlived its purposes. We don't want to be the global hegemon, yada, yada, yada. The assumption inherent in all of those kinds of views is that the people saying that care more about the downtrodden and the working class in America than the perfidious bagel snarfing globalist neocons do. Um, and that's just not true. I mean, maybe they, maybe I can't, I don't I don't have a care ometer to tell you who cares the most about who, but I can tell you this it is not in America's let's put it this way. Come up with the crudest definition of American self interest you can come up with, right? Per capita GDP, uh, full employment, uh, you know, uh, real wage growth, uh, purchasing power parity, whatever, you know, there's a sort of crude, purely economic, realist understanding of what is in the, the fundamental self interest of. America, particularly say the the lower half of the socioeconomic distribution. That metric, however you define it, will not get better if America ceases to be the leading superpower in the world. It will not get better if we stop, if the dollar ceases to be the reserve currency. It will not get better if uh, Russia and China become become the kinds of regional hegemons that make it impossible to have uh, uh, open seas and trade around the world um, uh, countries that are at the top of the heap do not fare well when they get off the when they get knocked off the mountain right uh, bad things happen. Uh, it took the UK decades to somewhat recover from no longer from the, its loss of of empire after World War II. The Soviet Union, uh, uh, you know, or Russia, is still economically a backseat case uh, since it stopped being the Soviet Union. That's saying something, because it's not like the average worker in the Soviet Union lived that great a life. Um, it would be bad in crude economic terms for America, if the America firsters had, uh, the foreign policy victories that they want. Um, and I don't think whatever labels we're supposed to put on, uh, uh, you know, internationalists, neocons, uh, um, you know, uh, non-realists, not, you know, whatever, 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 I can't even think of what the preferred definition that's not invidious or pejorative. Is for uh, people who want an assertive foreign policy in the world, but um, and and want to maintain America's status as the unrivaled superpower in the world, which I do. Um, uh, but you know, I don't think people like me and people of basically my broad view, you know, are in my camp. Sort of the AEI, you know, uh, you know Brookings you know, mainstream foreign policy view, um, about America's role in the world, we should not concede to the America firsters, um, um, or the neo isolationists and either party that simply because they want to do what they want to do in the name of the downtrodden and the working class, that what they want to do will actually benefit the downtrodden and the working class. Um, lots of people can claim they're doing something for some oppressed group. That doesn't mean what they're doing is good for that oppressed group. Um, we know that from all sorts of stuff in identity politics. Um, all right, I gotta, I gotta wrap this soon because I gotta go do the other podcast. I apologize if I end up repeating myself a little on that thing. I don't know if I will. it's just that, um, you know, conversations go where they go. Um, oh, but I want to apologize. So, uh, It was funny. So as you know, I was off to West Coast last week to uh, see my daughter. And um, um, I got a couple old friends in California. And, you know, my oldest and best friend on the West Coast is this guy, Craig Turk. Um, And uh, um, I don't see him much. He's a big TV muckety muck guy, but he used to be he used to live in D.C. He was one of the groomsmen at my wedding. Um, and and we talk every now and then. And we text a bit. And anyway, and I ask him for restaurant recommendations when I go out west. Um, so anyway, I'm landing at LAX. And, uh, and I want to send, uh, I want to text a picture to my wife who's in the seat next to me. And if you have an iPhone, you know how like when you're you want to send a picture from photos, it gives the option of, of messaging it or mailing it or uh, airdropping it. And it in your phone goes through your contacts and sees who's near you that you can airdrop something to. And it was weird. I was like I open it up and before my wife, it lists this guy, Craig Turk, who's, you know, right, you know not on the plane as far as I know. And it turns out he was on the plane. He was like five rows ahead of me. Um, and I text him and I'm like, dude, are are you at LAX? And he's like, yeah, I'm just landing. And I was like, huh. And I look up and there he is. Um, and, uh, so that was kind of just weird. So anyway, uh, we talked for a bit at the airport and, and he asked me, he was like, so what, you know, what was the big surprise at, um, um, that you got for your, you got Lucy for her birthday. And I was like, huh? And I didn't, cause I didn't remember talking to him about it. And he was like, yeah, dude. I mean, I keep up with your life cause I listen to your podcast and it's like, oh, that's right. And I'd forgotten that I was supposed, I had said the week before last that I would tell you what we did on the following podcast. And I forgot to, so, uh, to make an incredibly in, in indefensibly long story, a little short, um, Uh, We wanted to do something that uh, both that my daughter would claim to be embarrassed by, but actually really like. And so part of it was my daughter's always had this thing about balloons. She really likes balloons for like birthday or special occasion kind of thing. And now it's sort of become a tradition. So I got an an embarrassing, large, huge display of balloons that actually took her two trips to the campus uh, post office to get them all back to her room, including the, you know, the giant numbers for her birthday. But that's now that I would not have bothered you all with, you know, balloon talk. Um, my wife found a group in an uh, outfit in Southern California that does, uh, that delivers puppy parties to your home or workplace. Literally, they work with breeders and have a passel of puppies and they come and they bring them to your house or to wherever. Um, and um, and so we set it up. Uh, my wife reached out to a friend of my daughter's to help organize it so it could be a surprise. And they had a puppy party on the quad. And um, uh, and apparently it was a big hit. I mean, I, I was a little upset because you know, puppies are great, whatever for the most part, whatever breed they are. But you know, when you think about a puppy party, you're thinking essentially of basically a golden retriever or or lab puppies. You know, I mean, I'm not saying that they're the best puppies, but obviously they're great puppies. But they're just like where our brains go when you think puppy party, and um, and they don't work with uh those size dogs. They only work with small dogs. So it was mostly some fluffy dog type things and a whole bunch of wiener dog puppies and wiener dog puppies are cute i mean i'm kind of surprised because dachshunds are kind of snappy but none of them were and um super slippery puppies and um uh, and so i got all these pictures of my daughter and her friends playing with um Baby, baby Dachshunds and various uh fluffball puppies on campus, and yes, my daughter was embarrassed. I actually put in the card for the balloons um, you know something along the lines of dear Lucy, I hope um, uh, this embarrasses you half as much as we love you or something like that and um she was embarrassed, but uh um we're we were just very proud of ourselves for for doing the puppy party and um so there's that okay so i don't have anything else that i must talk to you about please start working the friday dispatch conversation podcast into your um dis- you know podcast consumption uh routine thanks to everybody by the way who um took advantage of the 30 day trial offer we got a bunch of uh, new subscribers and we hope we hold on to them well past 30 days Um, I appreciate it. If you haven't done it, um, please um, um, give us a try. And anyway, and also, I'm going to be delicate about this, so I'm not going to out anybody by name. But just so you know, um, we can search through the list of subscribers for email addresses. I mean, I, I don't mean this in any nefarious way. Like, it's just we need to know who our subscribers are it's a functionality of any you know subscription thing and um i was looking for a bunch of my friends um who uh tell me that they subscribe to the dispatch and it turns out they are not paying subscribers and again i don't want to out them in public but um uh i will be making note of this in a more direct way in the in the in the days ahead Uh, But anyway, please, uh, if you can subscribe to the dispatch, if you want to become a member. I was just, you know, just yesterday, apropos of not nothing. So the night Putin invaded, basically the whole morning dispatch team plus a few of the rest of us um, stayed up very late or woke up very early or both um, because they decided to rip up the whole morning dispatch and do it all about the invasion. And it came out really good, I think. Um, and I'm really proud of those guys. Um, I turned it, I tuned in around one thirty and got up around five. Um, Steve, you know, maybe got two hours of sleep helping Declan and then those guys put the whole thing together. And anyway, in the morning yesterday, uh, my wife was reading it and then she was reading the comment section and my wife is, is sparing with her compliments, um, about my professional life. Um, uh, not in any sinister way just, just she is and I don't deal well with compliments and um and she wasn't but she wasn't complimenting me she was just saying you know the dispatch comment section is just remarkable it's it's she was like it's just i mean it's it's a unicorn on the internet in the sense that people are over the overwhelming majority of people are smart they're thoughtful they're polite um, they engage in real conversations and, um, um, and they're actually interesting to read in a way that I don't think you can say about many other comment sections out there. Um, and so if you want to be part of that conversation, that's another reason you should become um, a member of the dispatch community because there's going to be a lot more of that kind of functionality coming down the road. So with that, thanks again for listening and, um, um, I'll see you next time. One, two, three, four, five. Yep. Okay. Here we go.